We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You know, it's 12.02 right now. If they want to fire me at 12.05, I'll go home and find something to do. I'll have a good day. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Thursday, April 9th. Nick Whalen back with Alex Barutha. Alex, uh, good to talk to you again. And we've been doing a couple of these pods per week um, since the NBA shut down. Um, had a great time with you earlier this week and James doing a, a rewatch of, of some Western Conference playoff games that we've hit over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we had Lakers Suns from 2006. Uh, that dropped on Tuesday. So if you haven't, make sure you go check that out. Uh, a lot of really interesting info. We've we've been going much longer than we expected uh, on on both of the rewatch pods we've done so far. Went for almost two hours on that one, but I, I was able to to make some cuts uh, and trim things down a little bit. Uh, but we've settled on 2004 Timberwolves Kings for the next rewatch, and that'll that'll hit the airwaves on next Tuesday. So that's Game Seven of the Western Conference. Semifinals, um, you know, peak KG, peak Chris Weber, peak Peja, the kind of peak Vlade, uh, just a lot of names as we as we kind of went down the list and started to look at the rosters really for both teams. Sprewell was on that that Timberwolves team. Um, so keep an eye out for that next week. Really excited to to dig into that game. But in the short term, Alex, we have somewhat of a news item to start with today, something that's been whispered about for 
the last week or so, and those whispers became louder over the last couple of days. And now, as of Thursday morning, we have an official announcement that the NBA will be reviving the horse competition for the first time in more than 10 years. This was something that we saw twice at All-Star Weekend in, I believe, 08 and 09, um, neither of which went over very well. Uh, just It was kind of a sideshow, and, and the NBA ended up scrapping it after after those two times. But now that we find ourselves with this dearth of programming and you know the appetite to, to see NBA basketball players, even if it's in a horse setting remotely from their own homes, ESPN is going to be televising all of these games. The first round is going to air this coming Sunday already, uh, Sunday night. So it's going to be going up against Westworld, I guess. Um, and then the semifinals and championship will air uh, a week from today, next Thursday, April 16th. So I know you and I are just buzzing about this. Just could not be more excited. We got the official field this morning. Um, the round one matchups are Trey Young against Chauncey Billups, Tamika Catchings against Mike Conley Jr., Zach Levine against Paul Pierce, and Chris Paul against the WNBA's Allie Quigley. Yeah, I um, I don't have, I, well, I don't have cable, so I don't know if I'll actually be able to watch this live. Uh, but I assume that it'll end up on the internet somewhere. Maybe uh, <clears throat> maybe someone will post the highlights, you know, uh, on YouTube. But I have people people generally don't post NBA videos on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, right. That that never happens. Um, no, I mean, I think, um, I mean, you mentioned this in the past kind of being labeled as a sideshow. That's really all we have now. I mean, the NBA is, you know, streaming like, you know, uh, uh, NBA players playing 2k and like, you know, like Fox sports networks are playing simulated 2k games of their respective teams and like simming out the rest of the season. So, um, you can understand where the appeal for, uh, actual professional basketball players doing <laughs> just shooting, just making trick shots. Uh, you can see where the appeal for that is. I, I have a feeling this might be incredibly underwhelming, partially because it's taking place remotely, digitally. You know, I'm, I'm sure they'll spruce things up. It is ESPN. Um, and I think it's interesting that, that ESPN, it's not surprising, I guess, but they, they're just instantly able to televise this. You know, who, who knows how long it's been in the works, but... You know, usually when there are sports going on, ESPN and, and any sports network that carries live programming has these things set weeks, months, sometimes years in advance, you know, and it, it would be very hard to just squeeze something in, especially in primetime on a Sunday night. But it, it just it shows us how flexible, you know, these networks are right now. Like, I, who knows what they're going to be pushing in favor of this, you know, probably some a rerun of some college football game from 2003, you know, so I, I think. There's certainly an appetite for it. People people are generally excited. I, I don't think this is something that would generate all that much interest if sports were going on. You know, if they had announced that they were bringing this back at All-Star Weekend in Chicago this past year, I don't, I don't think people would have been excited for it. But the fact that we've now, it's, it's been basically a full month without any basketball and without any other sports, it, it does kind of create this opportunity for, for this, I wouldn't say to take off or anything like that, but you know, I, I think the interest level, um, it's a unique opportunity, I guess, to, to try something like this. And it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how they end up formatting it. So according to a very brief release from the NBA, uh, the participants will be divided into two groups of four. And the winners of the first two games in each group will meet in the semifinals. So that's just a long-winded way of describing how a bracket works. Um, <laughs> but it's single elimination. So if you lose your you lose your match in whatever round, you're just done. There's no... No consolation bracket. There's no double, you know, win your way back in, anything like that. 
Um, so once you're out, you're out. A coin toss will determine the at the start of each game who shoots first. And the older player, or as, as it said in the release, the more senior player uh, gets to call heads or tails, which is huge. Are you, are you a heads or a tails guy? I'm a heads guy. What? I'm a tails guy. I don't think I've ever called heads, <laughs> ever. ever. <laughs> Except maybe, maybe on Madden or NCAA football when I'm just clicking through really quick to get to the game and, you have, and it's your turn to do the coin toss. Sometimes I'll accidentally select heads. But if I have, if I have my wits about me, always tails. Are you, are you right. steadfast heads 100% of the time? Yeah. So are you, wait, if you're playing like NCAA football or Madden, do you kick first or do you receive first then? It depends. It depends what kind of mood I'm in. I, it's funny you say that because I was just thinking about this last night. I had a, I'm playing as Arizona State right now. I left, I left my post at Ole Miss and took the job at ASU, uh, the okay. AD at Ole Miss. We, he and I just didn't see eye to eye despite three straight national titles. Um, but I, I was playing Ole Miss, you know, I set the schedule up so I could kind of get a revenge game right away. And normally I would, I would if I win the toss, I'd kick because I want to score before the half and then get the ball again in the third quarter. Um, but in this scenario, I just really wanted to score right away, kind of set the tone, you know, right. send a message to Ole Miss. So I took the ball and went down and scored. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm pretty much always uh, heads and then kick. So, OK, I mean, well, I, you must not win any of the tosses if you're picking heads. <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately not. But okay, so, you know, my people choose to receive, so I end up winning. Yeah, the computer, the computer doesn't get it. They're, the computer's always trying to send a message to me, and it very rarely works. <laughs> um, so back to the rules. Players must describe each shot, specifying the type of score they intend to make before taking a shot, such as a bank shot or a swish. Interesting. Uh, I, I don't know how, like, how strict are they going to be about that. You know, if Trey Young says, okay, you have to swish this three – and he like rattles it in or hits back rim and it goes in. Does that not count? Uh, that's a good question. I I don't know. I don't know. I think I think it should just be banks and non banks. I don't I don't think you should get into like the did this did this touch rim. Like we don't <laughs> if <laughs> we don't need an instant replay uh, review during this uh, during this competition. No. We most certainly do not, and I would imagine, given the technological constraints, we probably won't. Um, which is, which is, I think, for the best. I, I was talking to James earlier. What if we did a rotowire horse competition? I, I guess the biggest issue would be finding a gym or finding enough gyms for everybody. But who, who in the rotowire office would have your your bet on that? Would you bet on yourself? I think I would maybe choose you. Uh, <laughs> choose me. Uh, that's that's very kind of you. I don't know. Um. I really don't know. I mean, anybody, obviously anybody that's a good shooter. I mean, Herb could be, yeah. uh, you know, pretty good, pretty good shot. I would just be trying to shoot half courts every single time uh, because that's, I think, the most fun. But uh, anybody, anybody who ends up picking a free throw, I'd probably brick it. Yeah. So I, I would just lose on free throws the entire game. I think, I mean, if you just do like a left-handed layup, that knocks out half the staff. <laughs> like the, the entire field is just decimated. I, I think I would, maybe, Shannon would have a say in this. I could see Shannon just hitting oh, of five, course. five straight, like 15 footers off the glass. I, I don't think I could make five straight. No, I mean, he's, he'd be one of the top, he'd easily be one of the top favorites. Uh, you wouldn't, mm. you know, he, he could be one, two or three. That would not be mm. surprising. So you, you, me and James are going to throw up a little preview, I guess, for lack of a better term on this event. That'll be up on the site either later today or, or early tomorrow. 
you know, obviously there's not much you can do in terms of analysis. Um, we were able to locate some odds, uh, which have Trey Young and Chris Paul as the co-favorites, plus 300. Zach Levine, plus 350. Mike Conley, plus 450. Paul Pierce, plus 750. Not a lot of respect for Chauncey Billups at plus 800. And then you have the two WNBA players, Allie Quigley at plus 1,000 and Catchings uh, at plus 1,200. I, to me, there's just no sense in betting a favorite here. Like you're... I mean, I guess if I had to pick who I think will win, like Trey Young and Chris Paul as, you know, two strong shooters, current NBA players who were, you know, in great shape and playing in NBA games a month ago, uh, those guys make sense. But if you're actually really going to put your own hard-earned money on this, I, I don't know if I would feel great about betting on on anyone who's three to one in something that has this much variance. Yeah, I mean, my... My only, you know, I, I would bet on like Levine if, you know, like, okay, so dunking is not allowed, but I don't know when they say, you know, you have to specify what kind of shot you have to make. What if Levine's like, oh, uh, yeah, this is a 540 reverse layup? Uh, like, does that count? Like, can Levine do a, you know, can he do like a jumping 360 shot from the free throw line? And does that count? Because I don't, I don't know if Chauncey can do that. I don't know. Like, I don't know how many people. Uh, so I think I don't like it depends if the athleticism you know counts into it, but yeah, uh, that, that is a good point. I based on what we've seen in the past with this competition, and to be fair, we're judging. I mean, when they did this in 08 and 09, it was all NBA players. It, there were no retired players or WNBA NBA players involved, but like everybody was pretty tame. You know, we for the most part, guys were just shooting you know flat-footed threes. Or I actually went back and watched one of these competitions. OJ Mayo took a shot from the stands. This was the game was played outside, which is another thing I did not realize until watching. This was when the All Star game was in Phoenix. They set up a little mini court outside of the arena. That's where it took place. So there was kind of like a little, a little area for maybe a hundred or so fans to sit and watch. And and Mayo like climbed the bleachers and hit a shot from there. But that's about as extreme as it got. Um, and I, I imagine that's kind of what we'll see here, especially since a lot of these guys are are presumably in like home gyms that might might not even be full size. You know, I, I think there's probably going to be some limitations there. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't think Zach Levine's coming in with like, oh, I'm going to try to embarrass the hell out of Tamika Catchings. <laughs> that would be, inc- I mean, that would make for the best right. television though. It totally would. But yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, that's not what I'm expecting. At least I think everybody will be like pretty civil and pretty chill about it. Uh, that's, that's actually unfortunate. But yeah, the, the, the aspect of like who, what does everybody's court look like? Yeah. Like, I want to know if someone, you know, is just like out with the, you know, like the, $150 hoop from like Walmart uh, that they put like, you know, like a brick on the back of so it doesn't fall over forwards. <laughs> yeah. The classic like half broken cinder block. <laughs> yeah. You fill it all the way. Yeah. You fill it all the way with water and that's still not heavy enough. Yeah. I, I would like to see like some of these guys, Zach Levine, for example, like I, I would love to see him be like, all right, here's the shot. Turn back, tell the coach to fuck off, pull up from 27 <laughs> feet, swish. Like, can you, can you incorporate like real life? Shots like that? Uh, that would be really funny. Yeah, you just start incorporating, you know, personal. I don't even know what anybody well, I, else would do. I, I have an idea for Paul Pierce. It's like, all right, two dribbles left, behind the back, between the legs, poop your pants, bank it. <laughs> I would love to. That, I don't think we're going to see that level of creativity, but I would. I would love for that to be the case. I mean, that's the thing, though. Like, if this. You know, I think the success of this will not even really be based on who wins or like necessarily the actual like it's 
a lot of it's going to be the presentation of it, I think. And like you're kind of I think you're relying a lot on all of these all of these players to be like entertainers also. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't think it would be that fun. So I think if the individual players find a way to bring some sort of like funny entertainment factor into it, I think that would be best because I feel like the, you have to view this as like almost a funny, non-serious thing rather than this like serious. Oh, OK, I'm just going to take a 29 footer because I'm Trey Young and, yeah, you know, I don't. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, it looks like each game is going to take a half hour. At least that's what they're budgeting for TV wise. It's going to air from seven to nine p.m. on Sunday with with four games being played. And then the Thursday, um, the Thursday uh, TV broadcast is the same length as well. So I, I don't know if those will be a little bit longer in terms of how they kind of drag it out. And of course, there are commercials and whatnot involved. But yeah, I, I think you're totally right. You know, like. I wouldn't be surprised if we get like an appearance from Chris Paul's kids or things like that. You know, I, I don't think, you know, if, if there's any money on the line, I'm assuming it'll be donated to charity. You know, I, I just can't imagine this will be taken too seriously. No, no, not at all. All right. That's enough horse talk. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When you're looking for a credit card, get one that wins awards. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best of Awards winner for Best 0% Intro APR and Balance Transfer Credit Card. It provides a great way to pay for large purchases over time, as well as consolidating other card balances. And speaking of award winners, the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best Credit Card for Dining Out or Ordering In. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. Get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. If you're into cashback or travel rewards, U.S. Bank has credit cards that feature those benefits, too. Check out their full suite of credit cards at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. And the cards are available to United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. We we kind of started talking about some of the more recent drafts, um, last five or six years, and we debated a few that we wanted to just kind of parse through and not not do a redraft or anything like that, but just kind of do a reset and a look ahead as to one how the draft has turned out, you know what went wrong, what went right, what we'd do differently. To you know, what to expect going forward. And we settled on the 2015 draft. So this is a class that, if we're counting this season, uh, almost everybody has played five years, at least the guys who remain in the league. You know, Porzingis, you could say, has technically only played four since he missed so much time. Uh, but, but this class is five years in now. So I, I think we have a pretty solid base um, by which to determine what the the long-term ceiling is for a lot of these guys, what the floor is for a lot of these guys, uh, two, three years in, that's a lot harder, but five years, I mean, a lot of these players are 25, some 26, 27 years old, you know, if they were, if they were older coming in. Um, so, you know, the, the, the kind of next crop of, of guys who will be truly hitting their physical prime over the next year or so. So, um, this is a draft that of course began with Carl Anthony Towns at one D'Angelo Russell, at two, that was the first of three consecutive number two overall picks by the Lakers, none of which are still on the team, uh, nor is their number seven pick from the year before, Julius Randle. Jaleel Okafor went three. Kristaps Porzingis went four. Mario Hezonia rounded out the top five going to Orlando. Towns was basically the the unanimous number one pick, right? There wasn't even a discussion about that, was there? Well, there was for a lot of the year. It was, if you had taken a poll in October, it would have been unanimously Julio Okafor. And if you had done right. that in December, I think it would have been 80-20 Okafor. And even in, even in like January, February, it was probably 50-50. And then toward the end of the year, Towns really pulled away. And 
even though Okafor ended up helping lead Duke to a national championship, um, I mean, Towns, you know, helped Kentucky to the final four. You know, I, I think that was somewhat of a wash in the end. Uh, both of those teams went so deep in the tournament. There was a lot of exposure there. But uh, the way I remember it is Towns really separated himself in workouts, you know, kind of in that like April to May period is when it became really clear that he was going to go number one. Um, just because you, if you go back and watch those games, and I, I actually watched the Wisconsin-Kentucky game in full two times last week. That's how bored I was. It was on Big Ten Network twice, and I watched it consecutive days. And he's just, he doesn't look like current day Carl Towns at all. Like the points no. that he's getting, he's he's going one on one with Frank Kaminsky, and he's like backing him down and doing jump hooks. You know, like the, and that's kind of how Kyle has always used his centers. But it was always clear that Towns was a, was very much so underused. At Kentucky, you know, didn't shoot threes, uh, didn't look nearly as athletic as he as he was in the NBA. He was he was just playing a completely different game. And I think once teams started getting him in for workouts, they kind of saw the immense potential that was at times on display at Kentucky. But in retrospect, you know, had he been used differently, I, I think we remember his college career a lot differently than it actually was. I mean, he only took eight three pointers in 39 games at Kentucky. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. It's insane to think that you have a guy who in towns who has the potential to be one of the most, like one of the best offensive centers ever in the history of basketball, or at least in terms of like just jump shooting or efficiency or however you want to put it. And he played 20 minutes a game, scored 10 points in college, took eight threes. Yeah. Like it, it's insane to think that he was so misused and like why that would be the case. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not like a, I don't really follow college basketball, but stuff like that, that just like drives me insane. Um, and like, how can this even happen? Like, how is this possible? Um, well, if you look at but, that Kentucky roster, the, I mean, the answer kind of presents itself. I mean, there were nine players from that team who ended up playing in the NBA and a couple others who got looks, you know, if you count, if you count G league, I think there's 11 guys and maybe 12, I don't know what became of Dominique Hawkins, but that team was extremely, extremely loaded that you can make an argument that the wall Bledsoe, Patterson cousins team maybe had a higher ceiling just because, like Wall and Cousins specifically were just so damn good that year, and they they played more minutes. They didn't have as much depth. But this team, I mean, this was the first year that that Cal was literally platooning his subs. I don't I don't know if you watched much of this team at the time, but I mean, there were one, two, three, eight guys who averaged at least twenty minutes for this team, and another who averaged sixteen in Dakari Johnson, and then another who averaged eleven in Marcus Lee, who is, I think he transferred to Cal a year or two later, but was a five star recruit. Um, I mean, they had so much talent that I think in some ways it maybe ended up hurting them. And it sounds kind of crazy to say for a team that went 38 and one. But if you go back and watch that game against Wisconsin, I mean, you have, you have the Harrison twins playing big minutes over Devin Booker, Tyler Ulis, you know, guys who as, as their careers went on were proven out to be better players. And I think, I think they had so much depth that in retrospect, I think Cal would probably tell you, yeah, we maybe should have played town 32 minutes and reduced some of the other guys minutes. Like they were, I think they were trying to, to serve too many masters with so much talent on that team. And it wasn't revealed until later, just how special towns was. Right. Yeah. I mean that, that makes sense. I was, I was at that final four and um, yeah, I guess I didn't realize at the time, like, cause, because I didn't even, you know, even though I was there and like, I, I went to every Badger game I and I knew Kentucky was amazing. It it was you know it was hard to identify like who you know like you didn't know that Towns was going to be this player you saw Devin Booker come off the bench and you like didn't even think about it like I, it didn't it didn't really register to me you know seeing Devin Booker come off the bench at the time and being like oh man you know better watch it like Devin Booker's here it's it's crazy to think about um, yeah I mean we yeah we'll, I mean, we'll get to Booker he was obviously in this draft as well um, but 
Yeah, Towns at Towns at one, Russell at two, Okafor three, Porzingis four, Hazonia five. Like I said, um, we we went back and dug up some of the the draft grades from this draft from Chris Mannix at SI. We looked at some of the mock drafts that were out there and prominent at the time. I, I don't think we're, we're we're doing this to like smear any of these guys or no. you know laugh at their their failed predictions because I know you know we I I guess published plenty of mock drafts in the years to come and had a ton of swings and misses. But there were some big ones at the top, especially. And I, I think the most obvious one is Okafor. And it, it seems ridiculous because this wasn't that long ago. Like a player like Jalil Okafor, it's it's not like he became someone different in the NBA. He was always this guy. I, I don't I wouldn't blame him for, you know, being a failure uh you know, based on where he was drafted. And he's still in the league. He's made a fine living as a backup center, but when you're drafted number three overall, it's not expected that you're gonna be coming off the bench and playing eight minutes a game for the Pelicans five years into your career, the warning signs were there and it just seems like everybody collectively ignored them. 2015 is basically the turning point of like, I think the modern NBA Um, and maybe Jaleel Okafor being drafted number three is the, you know, the epitome of that where you have, you know, um, and, and like you said, like guys like I, I, we're bringing up guys like Chris Mannix and, and, you know, who wrote stuff at the time as like context. And, you know, he called Okafor the most appealing prospect on the board. Um, Bleacher Report, you know, said throwback low post big men are still valuable because they draw attention and open things up for shooters. And I actually don't disagree with that. Like the way, you know, like Jokic can draw attention in the post or uh, Embiid can draw attention in the post. I think that logic is sound, but you're right in that people were so obsessed with like his 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 post moves that they didn't really consider that much that he like, (laughs) yeah, they just ignored that his defense wasn't very good and that he was, you know, kind of one dimensional in that aspect. And I don't know if there's still some like desire, you know, uh, of GMs and like desire from fans to like, you know, bring back this low post player and everybody wants it to happen so bad that they just were like, Okafor can be this guy. And they were just willing to look past his his flaws. But everybody missed. I mean, he was right. It, it, it seemed like pretty unanimous that he was definitely a top five pick. Oh, absolutely. There was a ton of group think on Jaleel Okafor. And I think it started because he was a huge, huge high school prospect. Like this was he was the type of guy that you heard about his junior year. You know, a lot of these guys don't really become uh, prominent, you know, in the national conscience until until they're basically signing as a senior and he was one of those guys that, you know, his recruitment was a big deal going back, you know, early in high school. And it, looking at the numbers at Duke, it's just it's just astounding. Honestly, it really is. I mean, he was a 51 percent free throw shooter at Duke. He averaged one point three assists. You know, I, I I agree with you that there is some logic to if a guy is so good in the low post that you have to maybe send a double or just always be cognizant of where he is. That does add value to your offense. But if that guy has shown no ability to really be an above above average passer and probably a below average passer and he can't shoot free throws. Like those are just two huge red flags. And, you know, Joel Okafor is the type of guy that would have been a lock to go number one from like 1990 through 2007. But it it just, I I agree with you that, you know, this is maybe the draft that kind of shifted things in terms of really, really devaluing these type of players. But I I just can't shake the the belief that we should have seen this coming with him. Like there was, I watched almost every game of his in college. You know, he was he was as visible as any player that year. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming that, you know, I thought he should have been drafted 25th overall. 
it, it just in retrospect, it just seems really obvious that he had bust written all over him. And I thought it was interesting on on one of the the recent uh, mismatch pods on the ringer with with Chris Vernon and Kevin yes. O'Connor, they mentioned that uh, there there's at least a, a rumor around Philadelphia that Sam Hinkie really wanted Kristaps Porzingis, but he was overruled at the time by ownership who wanted the quote unquote safe choice in Jalil Okafor. And it's just, it's crazy to think that he was the safe choice. Like what about him was safe? There are so many times where um, the guys who are labeled a, a safe choice, like don't pan out. Like, you know, in one of these, in one of the previews, like mock drafts we're looking at, Frank Kaminsky was labeled a safe choice. Um, you know, I, there's, there's just other guys across the board who are labeled like that. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at the, the way people describe, and I guess we can, we'll, we'll jump into Porzingis at this point, the way people describe Porzingis, he's described as like this potentially transcendent player. And then immediately afterward, people are like, yeah, but he's risky. Like, like it's, it's so weird, the dichotomy and like people's write-ups and it's easy to criticize people's write-ups when, you know, you're not when you when you didn't write one yourself or, you know, you mm. you don't have your own. But I mean, look at, you know, Porzingis, who, um, you know, people are like he's uh, Bleacher reports like he's two years away from doing it. Any anything at the NBA level, um, there was hes- hesitancy to pick him because he couldn't play in the post and he was a weak rebounder. And it's like both of those things are still true and there's still weaknesses. But, you know, also in the same breath. People are saying, well, he's got one of the best strokes of anybody over seven feet ever. He's a top tier defender and like, you know, this, that and the other thing. And I it's I mean, he still went fourth. You know, it's not like someone completely whiffed on him. The Knicks still had the, you know, the the smart, uh, the smarts to take him fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird how he was viewed as a as a worse prospect than than Okafor. Yeah, last note on Okafor, something that's kind of lost to history is that the Sixers had Nerlens Noel and Joel Embiid on the roster right. at the time. So you you know, maybe that makes maybe it makes sense to say that you know taking Porzingis would have been equally redundant, you know, another big guy, but you know, they ultimately end up trading Nerlens Noel uh, later that season. I think he played like 25 games or something for the Sixers and then they they ended up dealing him to Dallas, which I completely forgot that that even happened. Like the only the, my only memory from that period is the hot dog gate incident. <laughs> And, and to be fair, at the time in 2016, Embiid was still a major risk. Like that was the year that he finally played after missing the previous two. But it, it quickly became clear, you know, I think he played 31 games that year. It became very clear that he was extremely good. And I, I, I get that there was still some inherent risk at the time of the draft. But to take a third center and triple down on that position uh, in retrospect was just crazy. And to when you already have two centers on the roster, you think that would maybe give you the license to take that risk and take Porzingis, you know, like he's, he's the third guy. Like you were just saying, okay, hopefully one of these three pans out ideally two of the three, maybe even three of the three. That's wasn't that the whole point of the process. Like that's what leads me to kind of believe uh, what, what KOC was saying about, you know, Sam Hickey, like everything we know about Sam Hickey would suggest that his line of thinking would mean Porzingis would be the pick. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, he's the, he's the upside pick and that's what, you know, yeah. that's what that's what Hinky was all about. And like from a modern basketball perspective, putting Joel Embiid next to Chris Asperzingas just makes sense. Because even I mean, because the, the reasoning there is, OK, let's say Embiid, if Embiid never plays basketball again, if he's just too hurt to play, then we can play Porzingis at center. 
and or or Nerlens at center, and then do Porzingis next to him. But if Embiid does play and he is healthy, then we can put Porzingis at power forward, and like that's sort of a logic, yeah. and we'll just get rid of Noel. So, yeah, in hindsight, it's completely horrible that you know I guess Hinky got overruled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's really one of the underrated what ifs, uh, not just from this draft, but from the last five years in the NBA of like, what if the Sixers had taken Porzingis like that? Maybe they kind of end up in the same spot that they are now, like based on the fact that they completely botched this pick and botched the Fultz pick, like they're doing pretty well. Um, but I mean, you, you could also make that case for, you know, what if they had just taken anybody but Fultz it would, yeah, at number one or stayed at number three and just taken Tatum, you know, I mean, there's plenty of permutations there, but I mean, they could, they're in a good spot. Right now, they were in a, they were in a, a great spot going into the year. Um, you know, I think everybody was about as high on them at, at the time as as anybody had been in the last you know, or basically since the process. But um, I mean, they really had they really hit on even just one or two more uh, of these because for all the draft picks that they had during the process, like Embiid worked out, but it, it took a while and it kind of was this roundabout way of working out. Simmons was a hit right away, but for all the picks that they had in the process, like they they basically whiffed on Noel. They whiffed on Jaleel Okafor. They whiffed on Markel Fultz. It's it's fairly impressive that they are where they are right now. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I mean, that was kind of the idea of the process, right? Was you just get so many picks and you draft every single one for upside that even if you whiff on, if you whiff on seven out of 10, mm-hmm. you'll still be in a great spot for, right. you know, for like five to 10 years going forward. Yeah. Ironically, they hit on the most risky of them all in Joel Embiid and they whiffed on who was viewed as the biggest guarantee in Fultz. <laughs> so outside of the top five, um, we went Willie Cauley Stein went six to Sacramento. Emmanuel Moutier went seven to Denver, Stanley Johnson, eight to Detroit, Frank Kaminsky, nine to Charlotte and justice Winslow, 10 to Miami. I will give you the floor to talk about any one of those guys or multiple uh, that you would like. Based on the mock draft that I looked at, this was all pretty chalky. Like this yeah. is kind of what, seems like was supposed to happen so it's hard to criticize any of these gms necessarily but um i'll I'll just touch on kaminsky quick because we were there and we watched him play um he also viewed as a safe pick uh here uh jeff goodman uh had a scout tell him quote post players with kaminsky's level of talent are still uncommon in the league he's a matchup problem for anyone because of the way he handles it and how he shoots it He's one of the most versatile bigs in recent memory because of his skill set. I, I mean, well, is they, he, they, like, are, they are rare because like that that just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> right, and I like we watched a lot of Kaminsky. He was good in the post in college, yes. as tons of players are. He was a good three point shooter. He was a decent passer. All those things were true, but he again not a like a very skinny player, uh, like horrible physicals and uh, was not going to play defense at the NBA level mm-hmm. and everything like that. And like, I, I don't know, like in hindsight, like taking him over someone like Miles Turner, you know, who had three and D upside or Devin Booker, you know, obviously hindsight's 2020 here, but I, uh, and, and Kaminsky was coming, you know, he was, I think, I think he gets a Wisconsin bump too. You know, not a lot of players come out of Wisconsin and then you, but everybody knows the program is strong. So when you get a team that goes to the, you know, the final four, the national title game, and they have two clear stars on their team. I think they get a little bit of a bump actually because they went to Wisconsin. 
Yeah, and maybe we're biased in that, but I, I think that was just a that was a really fun team. That was a team that I think most people wanted to win the national title once it once it got past Arizona in the Elite Eight. I, me- I remember somebody ran a po- like a, a poll, um, whether it was on Twitter or ESPN.com or something, and like every single state, I think except for Kentucky, had voted that they wanted Wisconsin to win. I mean, it was just, it was a team that it, they had gotten to the Final Four the year before. You know, it's just you had multiple white guys in the starting lineup. Like it was just it was just a really beloved team overall. But with that said, we were and all the people that we were hanging out with at the time were like the top, you know, 0.1% fans of Frank Kaminsky in college. And I never, ever once remember sitting around with my friends and being like, man, Frank's gonna be awesome in the NBA. I I hope the Bucs can find a way to trade up and get him. Like nobody was ever even talking about his NBA potential. Like I I don't think we said he's going to be terrible. He's going to be a bust or anything. But I remember him going where he went, going eight and just thinking like, I don't see it, you know, like the or going uh, nine to, to Charlotte. I don't I didn't see the upside there. Like I I would have been really happy with an NBA team taking him in like the 12 to 30 range. You know, that seemed like probably about what his what his value would project to be over the course of a career. But if you take somebody ninth overall, I mean, that's a lot to live up to. And it just as great of a college player as he was. It was really hard to see like how he was going to get better, let alone against significantly better competition. This was, um, I guess, two things I you're right in that we were also surrounded by people who were in the top 0.1% of like Frank Kaminsky fans. Cause I remember, you know, in the past couple of years, friends being like, where's Ethan Happ getting drafted? Like, what's his NBA thing? Like, is someone going to take him a second round? I'm like, are you like, are you kidding? Um, like, it's just a perception that anyway, uh, was this an MJ pick? Did Jordan select Kaminsky here? Oh yes. And as you recall, or may recall, they turned down four first-round picks from the Miami Heat to keep this selection and take Frank Kaminsky. That's incredible. I don't think they got value uh, with the pick based on that. I I mean, this might be one of those things where I think Jordan and other GMs have been criticized for, and I think a lot of times as form, you know, former players get criticized for, they just watch the tournament. Like, these guys only yeah. watch the NCAA tournament. They don't trust their, their scouts. They don't, you know, they don't watch college basketball the rest of the year. And then they, whoever, you know, whoever's in the final four, those are like, well, mm-hmm. we got to get one of those guys. Or we got to get one of right. the top two guys, one of these teams. And I think MJ, I mean, MJ's yeah. fallen victim to a lot of things. It's the GM, but I think that was yes. just a result of, of that. It was mm-hmm. kind of the perfect storm for Kaminsky to get drafted ninth. Yep. I, I actually misspoke. It was the Celtics who offered four first round picks and they were, they were rumored to have offered possibly up to two second rounders as well. Um, and they, 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 had their eye on, they had their eye on Justice Winslow, right. who, who, of course, yeah. ended up going to 10 to Miami. And <laughs> this is also coming on the heels of in 2014, the Hornets, this is on the record, turned down two first round picks from the Bulls in 2014 uh, to, again, stay at number nine. And they were so set on taking Noah Vonley that they, they declined that offer of two first rounders and, and stuck with him, who, of course, they ended up trading a year later, I believe, to Portland. So. Not a great. Tra- I mean, this is not news to anybody. Michael Jordan has struggled as the the head of the Charlotte Hornets. But I mean, it's it's one thing to to take a guy and and you know I, I wouldn't say Kaminsky is a true bust. He's still in the league. He's he actually had some surprisingly productive stretches for Phoenix this past year. But obviously, he's not playing for the team that drafted him to take that guy ninth and then you know also have this this thing hanging over you where everybody knows that you had this uh, alleged offer. Uh, on the table, one that was that great, you know, four first round picks, even even if those are mid to late round picks, like four first rounders, um, especially in this draft, you know, the, the guy, you know, I, I think 
I think Charlotte probably wishes they'd taken Justice Winslow, but it's also not like Justice Winslow is a four-time All-Star right now. No, I mean, do you? I mean, do you think 2015 is a turning point, not just for, uh, not just for like post big men being drafted high, but also like the absurd draft pick haul for like other draft picks? Like, when's the last time in the past, you know, four years that we're like, oh yeah, someone offered, you know, four first-round picks for like, you know, I don't even know a good example, but like, I, I feel like that, you know, that the trading has gotten better. Like, you know, there's no rumors like. Uh, you know, Dallas offered four first round picks picks to get Frank Nilakina. Like you, you never right. hear anything like that anymore. I, I think it's draft trades and trades in general. You know, you just don't see as many teams willing to mortgage their future unless it's for something like Kawhi Leonard or Anthony Davis. You know, we we do still see that, right? right the stockpiling trades, but no, in ter- in terms of on dr- like draft night, draft capital type of trades, no, not really. I, I think teams are more cautious about it. I think teams are more cautious about not falling dramatically in love with some player, you know, in the, in the teens that they're willing to mortgage, you know, a year or two in advance. Like we've just seen that fail. I think for so many teams that there are enough examples now uh, that most GMs can, can kind of resist, you know, whenever, whenever the, the appetite to make a trade like that maybe rises. Can you, can you explain to me Stanley Johnson? Like, of course, what would you like to know? I just want to know what happened there. Like he was claimed, like this guy's a good shooter. I looked at his shooting percentage. It checked out. It seemed like him and Winslow were very similar prospects or viewed in a mm-hmm. similar light. I mean, either of them panned out, but Johnson like cannot shoot a basketball, and it, by all accounts, like could literally not get minutes for this Raptors team, which at this year, which like mm-hmm. at times desperately needed just wing minutes. So he was a guy who, uh, much like Okafor, was a just monster high school prospect. And I, I think he was on the radar even sooner. Like, I remember hearing about him as a freshman, sophomore in high school. Like, he was one of those, you know, not like next LeBron James or anything like that. But, like, I mean, he was just one of those guys who was, like, a man at age 14 and was just, you know, on, like, he was on everybody's radar early on. And like you said, you look at the numbers at Arizona – they weren't that great, but I think people made some excuses for him. Like that was a really talented, really deep team. Whereas a lot of the freshmen who at that time were having big years, you know, would come in and just kind of be the man somewhere, put up 18 a game, move on. Like he had to kind of be a role player for that team. And he was just never that guy. Like he was very much just kind of a, I wouldn't say me first, but like more of a one-on-one score, you know, like he, it was hard for him to shine, I think in a reserve or in a, a complimentary role, the guy I would kind of compare him to just in terms of his, uh, honestly, in a lot of ways, like his his high school career, his reputation, and in the way that his NBA career panned out, is Shabazz Muhammad, who had a brief stint with the Bucks not long ago. But he he went 14 to Utah a couple years earlier in 2013, and he was one of those guys too who he got drafted 100% on reputation. Like he was not good at UCLA. He he was outright like pretty bad. But I think there was this carryover of like, well, we've been hearing about this guy forever. Like he's he was the number one prospect in his class at one point. We just got to take him. And I think the same thing happened with Stanley Johnson. And, you know, we, we see him kind of continue to get these these chances, you know, in the NBA. I think he was with New Orleans for a little bit uh, last year. Uh, Detroit, obviously, where, where he started out. Uh, spent some time with Toronto this season. But he's, you know, the, the places that he's, that he's stopped, he just hasn't really been very impressive. You know, I mean, New Orleans essentially had the option to keep him at a very low cost after 18 games last year. And they just they just cut him loose. You know, a team that isn't necessarily rebuilding, but is the type of roster you think would maybe give a guy like that a shot. And I mean, he's, he's one of those guys that as we look forward, 
he might have to make his way back in the G League next year. Like he'll he'll be very much on the fringes of getting a, de- a guaranteed NBA deal. Yeah, hundred percent. Especially because he's gotten so many different types of opportunities on so many different teams. Right. Although I guess it's only four teams, but like I feel like Detroit tried to play him like like three different ways. Do we start him? Do we bring him off the bench? Do we have him ball handle? Do we have him play like power forward? Like he's he's been put in I think every situation possible to try to get him to to succeed or be a helpful player. And it just hasn't panned out. And he's still, <laughs> he's 23. I mean, he's going to turn 24. And I think it's, I think you're right. And that it might already, might already be over for him in terms of, you know, uh, an NBA, a guaranteed NBA deal. I know when you're shooting 72 or 37%, 37.2% from the field through 300 NBA games, it's, it's pretty tough to come back from that, you know, sub 30% from three, a guy that he's always had like one of the selling points with him is he he's really long. You know, he's only six, six, but he's, he's listed at two forty five. I mean, he was a big bodied physical yeah. type of player. So, you know, the guys, there's not a lot of guys who have his combination of length and, and girth. You know, there's a lot of six, seven kind of string bean type of players out there. You know, your Terrence Ferguson's of the world who you can just go pluck out of the G league. But I think there, that was one of the big intriguing points with him is he was just so large and so athletic for that size. And, it just hasn't translated. You know, I, I, I have nothing else to say about him. It, it feels like we haven't seen him play a truly meaningful role in, in like two years. We stopped at Justice Winslow, who was number 10. Uh, and then it goes Miles Turner out of Texas at 11, Trey Lyles out of Kentucky, uh, 12 back-to-back Kentucky picks, Devin Booker at 13, Cameron Payne out of Murray State at 14, and then Kelly Oubre, uh, 15, uh, to Atlanta. Uh, that's out of Kansas. That's a really nice stretch of like role player picks 11 through 15 um you know it's it seems in hindsight now i guess i didn't know a lot about um miles turner's collegiate career but in in hindsight it seems crazy that he could slip this far as like this three and d what we understand to be like the ideal kind of modern five although i guess in college i'm looking at stats right now only 17 of 62 from the three-point line so maybe there was just some hesitancy that he could get that shot because he you watch him now and he's just not really a great offensive player. Like he's not going to go out there and get a shot. You know, like he's you know, he takes nine shots a game. Basically, he's not great in the post, um, anything like that. But he's not not even a, a great rebounder. But um, I, I still believe in his potential. Oh, for sure. I think he's one of the guys who, um, you know, he, he hasn't been an all star yet. Uh, but he's, he's one of the guys who every year is seemingly on the short list for defensive player of the year. It, it, he kind of got passed up, it seems, by Sabonis this year. And we'll see what the long term viability is of that pairing. But when you start to look at guys in this class who now that we're five years in, you know, who haven't made an all star game and still could. He's really one of the only names who comes to mind. And this class has produced four all stars in Towns, Porzingis, Booker and D'Angelo Russell. Outside of Turner, is there another guy who you could really see making a team over the next four or five years or, or kind of making that next step to get in the conversation even? I mean, when, when you sort by win shares, Montrez Harrell is surprisingly number two. Uh, he's obviously been on a lot of winning teams since he came into the league, but not really the type of guy you see making an all-star game. You know, I mean, Josh Richardson, Terry Rozier, guys like that are, are on that list, but you know, for me, it, it's kind of maybe Miles Turner and, and another guy you named in that group being Kelly Oubre. Yeah, I think I think it comes down to Turner, Ubre, and maybe Rozier. Uh, yeah. I I'm losing a little faith in Rozier. 
I think Ubre might be a little overrated, but he's oh, consistently well, well. grown better every year. Um, and I, you know, if he gets his if he gets his shooting down, I mean, that's the next thing for Ubre. You know, you can see where the potential is because he can do a little bit of everything. But as soon as he becomes a knockdown shooter, that's kind of the next step. And then for Rozier, it's just becoming an actual point guard. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think Harrell. You know, I think the only way Harrell's making an all-star game is if he goes to another team other than the Clippers and plays 30, what, 34 minutes a game? Because he could easily put up like 25 and nine if he if he was the starting center for Charlotte next year, he'd put up 25 and nine. Not even a question. So I think think it comes down to those guys. Yeah, I think it would be whoever's in the East has the best chance. Like I would almost be tempted. I would almost be tempted to take Rozier out of that group just because I feel like he has the most opportunity. Like It wouldn't be that shocking if he averaged 22 points and seven assists next year. And in the East, that might be enough to get you that, that 12 spot. Right. So the only, the only real whiff in the 11 to 15 range is Cameron Payne. Like you said, you got a, a very good player in Turner at 11, uh, who uh, was the first in a run of very similar Texas centers who seemed to come out every year. It was him, then Jared Allen, then Mo Bamba, then Jackson Hayes. Turner's probably the most most polished of those guys. The other three are maybe a little more similar style-wise, you know, defensive rim runner types. Um, but I, I thought that was that was kind of a weird note that he he kicked off the the run on Texas centers. But Cameron Payne, I remember liking the pick at the time. You know, didn't watch a ton of him in college, uh, but but he was someone who had kind of filled like Isaiah Cannon was a huge name in college, and he was he was I wouldn't say a household name, but if you followed college basketball, you knew about Isaiah Cannon at Murray State. And I still so, like Isaiah Cannon. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like every year he he'll like sign a 10 day and have a, like an 18 point game for someone and hit five threes or something. But I mean, he was a huge scorer at the college level. And I think that put Murray State kind of into the national consciousness. So while Cameron Payne was at a relatively unknown mid-major, at least people had heard of Murray State. And it had at the time it had produced an NBA player in Isaiah Cannon. So it wasn't that crazy to take someone from there at 14. But I mean, campaign is one of those guys who, to me, has just gotten way too many opportunities to succeed. Like he has been legitimately terrible everywhere that he's been in the NBA. And we we saw OKC give him a shot. We saw Chicago uh, a couple of years ago give him a shot. Uh, they ended up bringing him back for part of last season, and and then Cleveland even brought him in towards the end of last season for a cameo. And he's he just hasn't really produced anywhere that he's shown up. Yeah, kind of the the 2015 scouting report on him was kind of, okay, he has good, you know, he has good vision, his fundamentals are fine, but he's not a good athlete. And then, you know, in this, in in one of these mock drafts, it's like, he's not a good athlete, but he loves to push the ball in transition. Like, like how is that going to, like, that's not going to, like, he's going to need time adjusting to the speed of explosiveness at the NBA, but he's going to get out and run. Like, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Um, but yeah, it seems like, you know, like he, I, I think his jumper didn't continue to grow. I think, I think that seems to be the main problem, you know, because it, it doesn't seem like there's any question about his ability to be a point guard. It's just that when you're, when you go into the NBA and you can't get past people like you used to be able to, and opponents start sagging off of you, um, and you're not going to be able to hit jumpers, it's just tough to be a point guard. It, it you, it, you know, you can't really make the same passes you're used to. You're not going to get to the rim. And um, so you, you can kind of tell why he got those chances. Uh, but, you know, it it's it's falling apart very quickly for him. He at least was a guy who did produce in college, 20 points, four rebounds, six assists as a sophomore. And you can quibble about the level of competition in the Missouri Valley. But, 
you know, still a, a guy who who at least had the numbers to back it up in college. So I, I don't think this was a crazy pick at the time, but it, it is another example, much like Okafor and and even Hazonia and certainly Kaminsky to some degree of just the group think of, well, everybody thinks he's going in the 12 to 15 range. We have the 14th pick. I guess we should take this guy where, you know, you, obviously Terry Rozier would have been a better pick there. Um, and then as you start to look at some of the guys that went in the 20 to 30 range, it's always tough to say, well, Larry Nance went 27th. How did they, how did they not just take him 14? You know, like there, there, there becomes these kind of tiers that seemingly every team has. And the, the teams that, that don't base their analysis off of the group think tend to do better in these drafts. But it seems like there's a lot of agreement overall, um, on, on most of these guys, because when one of the better players goes 27th or Rashawn Holmes goes 37th, Montrez Harrell went 32nd. Um, you know, there's a, like we could blame all the teams that are just ahead of those picks for not taking him, but half the league ended up passing on these guys. I mean, if you if you go to a college like Murray State, wouldn't you have to be like so unbelievably dominant to be considered for this type of like range in the NBA draft? Like John Morant, John Morant went as high as he did because he was insane, yeah. uh, like making people look stupid. He would he made Marquette the entire team look horrible. Uh, in the talk about a, a tournament bump, but um, yeah, I feel like it, it doesn't seem like he was producing at the kind of level you would want out of a college like Murray State to be, uh, you know, a lottery pick at 14. I think that's actually a really good point. And Morant is a great example, and I think Curry is another example where yeah. the numbers for Curry just became so overwhelming at some point that. You know, and we he still fell to some degree in the draft. You know, I mean, he was a, he was a top ten pick, but it's not like he was never in competition to go number one or number three or number four. Like he went about where he was expected to go, and even though, you know, he was hands down the best shooter in the draft, and for two years at Davidson was just a dominant force, there was still that hesitation, despite the fact that I mean, do you remember there was a game his final year at Davidson where I, I don't remember who the opponent was, but. They, they literally doubled him the entire game and just played three on four and were content. Like Curry just stood near half court or stood in the corner and two guys were around him at all times. Like it was it was a complete gimmick. And that's how dominant he was. I mean, teams were going to those extreme lengths um, to to do that. And, you know, in, in Curry's defense, he also had a really memorable tournament run where they went to the Sweet 16. And that helped a lot, much like Morant. You know, they nobody remembers that. After beating Marquette, Murray State got absolutely murdered by Florida State two days right. later. But they remember the Marquette game. They remember the dunk. Um, and I think that kind of solidified it for a lot of people who weren't grinding John Morant tape on YouTube before the tournament. Just that one game was enough for for the average person to be like, oh, I love this guy. He was great against Marquette, you know. And I, I think that this all goes back to your point about Payne, where he never he never had those moments. The numbers weren't that dominant that you know, you, you say, all right, if this guy's averaging 35 in a, in a small conference. You're like, okay, we need to take a look, but you know, 20 and seven, maybe not so much. Yeah. So if we get into the 16 to 20 range, Terry Rozier went 16 to Boston, Rashad Vaughn, ugh, 17 I to know. Milwaukee, Sam Decker, 18 to Houston, Jerry and Grant, 19 to Washington and DeLon Wright, 20th to the Toronto Raptors. So you know, at least two of these guys are still hanging around in Rozier and DeLon Wright, both playing well. Rashad Vaughn, he was one of those guys who it was immediately clear was not going to work out. Like five games in, he was just in over his head. And he was he was super, super young. Like he was one of the youngest players to ever be drafted into the NBA. Uh, he's still only 23. So he was at the time he was, 
was he even 18? I'm trying to do the math on this. Like he, he's an August 96 birthday. I don't know. Listen, don't know. Rashad Vaughn, summer league god, Rashad Vaughn, because the only place in the entire world where he can make a basket was his hometown of Las Vegas, Nevada. So yes. he, uh, you know, every time the Bucks played there during summer league, he was, he was, uh, he was balling. But not a lot of criticism about the pick, and uh, that seemed pretty, I guess, chalky at the time. Like I don't, I don't really yeah. think there was much like. You know, at the time, people didn't think that was bad, but um, Decker, well, people really, yeah. what people really wanted was Decker, who went the next right. pick. People were really upset that the Bucks didn't take Decker, and it wasn't it wasn't about Vaughn. I think people were fine with the pick. I mean, once once you get into the late teens, it's it's such a crapshoot anyway. But people really wanted Decker. I can understand wanting Decker. You know, and I think I think Decker's career, you know, ended up getting cut a little short in the NBA because of his his back injury. He had back surgery at least once, right? He had. Two yeah, pretty significant he's, he's injuries. Had, I think. Yeah, he's been playing over in Europe recently. Yeah, I think I think he kind of got derailed. I think had he been completely healthy, there's probably a spot for Sam Decker on rosters. But at the end of the day, like when you know when I ended up watching him because I was a fan of Wisconsin, so I want to check in. Like he he was not an NBA caliber athlete, you know, in terms of running the break, in terms of being able to drive past people. His NBA, you know, destiny, I think was just going to be that of a, you know, like three-point shooter, spot-up three-point shooter who had the athleticism to, like, make a dunk in transition and, like, run. But mm-hmm. I don't think he would have been anything more than, you know, that, you know, that's that six-foot-seven, six-foot-eight guy that kind of just floats around the league, hits some threes, you know, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I think that was kind of the hope for him was he would become, trying to think of a comparison, I mean, I think they probably had higher hopes at the time, but like a Troy Daniels type, you know, he was just kind of this quick firing, you know, he can, he can come in off the bench, play 12 minutes and he maybe gets four threes up in that time. And he's just, he's just kind of a floor spacer and and doesn't really offer much else. But I think a lot of the intrigue was just how young he was. And there was some hope that he would develop. Obviously that did not happen. Jerry and Grant now out of the league. uh, He was a guy that, that kind of bounced around um to to a few spots and actually ended up starting his career in new york he was part of a draft night trade um so he starts there goes to chicago played in orlando for 60 games last year but he's a guy that that too like might be done in the nba and and then delon wright who had a pretty nice um a pretty nice run obviously in in toronto and has carried that over to dallas still still a guy that never really has been like handed the keys to to show what he can really do and he's 27 now so you know maybe we never end up kind of seeing him get that chance, but uh, at, at the very least, he's a very, very solid backup point guard. Yeah, Bleacher Report had him mocked going to the Spurs, called him the typical San Antonio Spurs draft night target, specializes in defense uh, as a pass first player. And I actually think that's like a really good, uh, that's a really good like description for him because he's kind of, it's almost like a DeJounte Murray thing uh, to some extent. So I think, but you're right, he, he, he hasn't seemed to found you know, even the even the Mavericks you don't do not trust him. Even when Luka Doncic was out, they weren't trusting Delon Wright with thirty minutes. And I don't know if that's a thing where it's like he's more productive if you have him play twenty four minutes and have him go all out on defense. You know, for those mm-hmm. twenty four minutes rather than have him slog the thirty five minutes. But he's a guy I still like, and I think I think he will be a a pretty like significant role player for his for a pretty long time. Although I think he's an older. I think he's kind of older, right? Compared to yeah, he's twenty seven. Twenty seven. He's about to be twenty eight, but 
I still like him. Yeah, for sure. I, I think if you if you can carve out a kind of half starter, half um, bench player role with the 20th pick, and you're still very much in the NBA and will be for a while, that's that's pretty good value at 20. Is there anyone in the 21 to 30 range that you want to talk about? Um. Yes, I would like to talk about Bobby Portis and Larry Nance. Of course. Uh, I wanted Bobby Portis on the Bucks so badly. Uh, I was completely convinced that he would be good, that he would be like this high-energy, insane rebounder who could also hit threes and play like both four and five spots. And I still love Bobby Portis, and I know he's not that good. Uh, but I, I was completely upset when when Chicago ended up getting him, or when the Bucks. I wanted the Bucks to take Portis at 17. That's what I wanted to happen. Yeah. Um, I, I remember feeling that way as well. And certainly a lot of people, it, it was kind of Decker and Portis, I think were the two guys and, you know, people knew about Vaughn, but I, I don't think the, like the average Bucks fan was thrilled about the Rashad Vaughn pick. I don't think they knew much about him and they, they knew obviously a lot more about Decker and knew something at least about Bobby Portis, who was a great player in the sec. And I I'm kind of with you. Like I'm not totally out on Bobby Portis. He's been productive. He's pretty versatile given his size, He's just been in some like horrific situations to start his career. And, you know, if he goes to Milwaukee and, you know, probably sits for a year or two and just kind of ends up coming up with that team and coming of age with with this current group, I, I think things could be a lot different for him. I think so, too. Um, as far as Larry Nance, I think Larry Nance might be one of the most underrated players in the league. I, I don't know, like, what kind of qualifiers you need to put on that necessarily, but all of his advanced numbers suggest that he's just a winning player. He, he has great numbers in terms of his advanced stats, despite being on losing teams his entire career. And uh, I think, you know, he's he's shown even more development with the the uh, Cavaliers this year shooting the three. I'm just like sick of him not being on a playoff team, like because I think he could give a good like 24 minutes a game to a. You know, a team going to the final. I know it's ridiculous Just, to say. I'm sick but, like, of it. I'm, I'm so sick of it. I am, I am sick of it. I am all in on Larry Nance as a winning player for 24 minutes a game. Like, if you put Larry Nance on, I don't even know what a good example is. A lot of teams have centers. But, you know, like Larry Nance on the Celtics or something. Or Larry Nance is like a Brooklyn Nets, like, six-man. Uh, neither of those are particularly strong examples. But you know where I'm getting at. I do. I mean, he did. He's played in an NBA Finals. People forget. He, he came over... And, you know, was was on that one Cavs team that that made a run. So, I mean, he, he started his career in L.A., was on basically got to the Lakers right as they were bad and then was traded to the Cavs, had that one half season. And since then, obviously, the Cavs have, have fallen off the cliff as soon as LeBron left. So he, he's been in some tough spots. But I do agree with you. I mean, it's tough to call him underrated because he did get paid. Like He's making like 11 a year, right? Uh, I think so. I thought he signed like uh, a four for 40 or four for 44. I he has, I mean, he has the fourth highest VORP in this entire class. Yeah, he's good. I, I, so, I don't know. It's, he, it is interesting that they haven't talked about offloading him. You know, maybe, maybe maybe his value around the league is just lower than we think it is. But I don't remember hearing any Larry Nance trade talks this past year. And, you know, granted, his his extension did just kick in this year. So maybe Cleveland sees him as a future piece. But if that's the case, why did you trade for Andre Drummond? Why did you not also, trade Tristan Thompson? And also, he's 27. I mean, if yeah. the, if you're the if you're the Cavaliers, you're <laughs> optimistically you're good in three years. 
he's gonna be thirty. So like, what's like, what's the point here? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to consider the front office that we're that we're talking about here. Yes. A couple other names in that range: Justin Anderson, out of Virginia. He, he ended up going to Dallas. People people really liked him, and even as of like a couple of years ago, he he was just kind of this like Swiss Army knife, defense first, yeah. you know, super athlete, kind of had a, a wonky looking shot, still does. Um, like but every now and then, yeah, every now and then he could hit corner threes. But he was just one of those guys who like defended bigger than his size. He, he was six six, two thirty. Um, but he's he's kind of been on the fringe of the league the last couple of years. Rondé Hollis Jefferson went to Portland at 23. He ended up being part of a draft night trade uh, that that landed him in Brooklyn. So the Nets gave up Pat Connaughton and Mason Plumley, who at the time was somewhat valued, for Steve yeah. Blake and that 23rd pick, which which ended up becoming Hollis Jefferson. I I was out on Hollis Jefferson like last year. And I'm kind of still out on him, but the 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 Raptors were putting together like a decent stretch with him at center when they were down like Abaca and uh, and Mark Gasol, and you know they're not going to trust Boucher with a ton of minutes. Right. So I, it's weird to think that Hollis Jefferson might you know his his the rest of his career he might end up being like a weird six six small ball center. I mean, I, I don't I don't really know what his career trajectory is. I think it's as cloudy as as almost anybody. But um, he's had productive stretches. But he was also I mean, the vast majority of his career and the vast majority of his minutes were on those garbage Brooklyn Nets teams. And yeah. when a team is that bad, it, it's really hard to know how good any of these players actually are. And I think he was a kind of a victim of that. Yeah, people really liked him coming out of Arizona. I know, I know James was really high on him, and rightfully so. I mean, people really saw him as kind of kind of like Anderson, another guy who played bigger than he was. And now we now we see that now that they're, they are kind of playing him at center in Toronto. But he, he's one of those guys that just never really improved once he made it to the NBA. Right. Like he he would show flashes with Brooklyn. Like he started 17 games as a rookie. He started more than half the games his second year. Started 59 games in in 2017-18. So. It's not like he never got a chance. Like he he absolutely did, but to me he just never never quite showed the improvement. Uh, I think that that the Nets hoped, and he he peaked his third year and was actually pretty decent. You know, 14 points a game, seven rebounds, two and a half assists, one steal, and and 0.7 blocks for for a guy playing 28 minutes. Not bad, but he shows up the next year and just was not the same player whatsoever. And I think the biggest thing for him is he can't space the floor. Like he's six, six and he cannot shoot the three at all. He, his best year shooting the three was his rookie year and he shot 29% and he's gotten incrementally worse every single year since then. Yeah. The question just becomes, you know, for a guy like Hollis Jefferson, like what, you know, what replacement level NBA wing could not get, you know, 14 points, seven rebounds two assists if they played 30 minutes on a team that like needed it. You know what I mean? Like, right. uh, you know, just like if you're, if you're a good enough kind of pure, like just if, yeah, if you're a hooper, uh, if, yeah, if you can ball, you will get numbers for that team. And so like, you just, you can't tell, but so many of these guys, you know, Winslow, Stanley Johnson, Rhonda Hellas Jefferson, these like multi-tool guys, you can understand why teams want them because you draft them and you're like, if this guy can develop a three-point shot, even if there's a 25% chance that this player becomes a 37% three-point shooter, we have a legitimate starting rotation player on our team. But for so many of these guys, it just does not work out because they have not been good shooters their entire lives. 
And that's why they've developed other skills and they get to the NBA and that doesn't change. So this draft has six guys who were selected in the second round who are in the top 18 in VORP. Montrez Harrell, Josh Richardson, Rashawn Holmes, Norman Powell, Pat Connaughton, and even Willie Hernan Gomez is clinging to that spot. So like, I think if we did do a redraft, all six of those guys definitely go in the top 20, maybe like maybe like the top 22, depending on how you feel about guys like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of someone who's who's kind of still on the fence. Like Trey Lyles is, is kind of right in that in yeah. that territory as well. But I, I mean, six six guys from the second round who have become, yeah, I, maybe impact players is a little bit strong for, for a few of these guys, but all of them are rotation guys with, with maybe the exception of Hernan Gomez, who continues to find himself in very strange situations wherever he goes. Yeah, this this draft is filled with a ton of like really quality role players. Um, and even Norman Powell, I mean, it seemed like even last year Norman Powell was kind of on the fringes. Like if if things, you know, like things were one bad step away from Powell just kind of yeah. you know, not getting a, a decent gig. And now he's turned out to be a great scorer. Um, and obviously we talked about Harold before. Josh Richardson having kind of a weird year with with Philly um, as like a you know, fourth, fifth option, but I still like him overall, a good glue guy at the guard spot. And I love Rashawn Holmes. I cannot say enough good things uh, about Rashawn Holmes. And I hope that, uh, I hope that the Kings just lean into it and go Rashawn Holmes at Sanger next year. I I do too. I have my doubts based on the organization that we're talking about. I, I mean, they have priorities with Marvin Bagley as well. I, they have not followed through on playing Bagley at small forward, like we initially heard after that draft. Uh, so, I mean, Holmes' future, despite how well he's played, is much more clouded than it should be. Are, are there any other names from the second round who, like, mo- other than the six that I mentioned, like, the rest of these guys are, you know, either out of the league or really, you know, hanging on. And for the most part, they're they're out of the league. Are there any names that you remember, like, being really into at the time? Um, I had remembered Rakeem Christmas's name because his name is Rakeem Christmas. Right. Uh, and also because, like, at the time, I think this was one of the first years where in NBA 2K you could download draft classes off the Internet. And so, like, people could make the actual draft class for the upcoming years. And um, so you would see – you would get a feel for some guys' names. And Rakeem Christmas is always a guy who in, like, every single, you know, like, fake 2K draft class was – always ranked near the top along with guys like cliff alexander i think in other years yep um but yeah he was a name that i knew other than that i mean i get kevin looney was technically a first round pick um i guess at 30 it's decent value because the clippers have won titles with him yeah but i'm not really sure like you know he had kind of a weird year with the injuries i'm not really sure what like kevon looney's career trajectory is at this point like it's kind of hard to see him slipping out of the league given what he's done but i'm also not I don't know. I'm not that. It's not that inspiring. Well, he he just got paid, didn't he? So I don't, I don't think he's in danger of falling no. out by any means. But he he's just been a much different player in the NBA than I thought. He, I mean, he was kind of considered this like ultra versatile defender coming out of college at UCLA, and he just he hasn't been as mobile in the NBA. And he's had these injuries that have maybe played a role in that. But I remember him just being a lot more like switchable and athletic and just versatile at UCLA than he's been in the NBA. Like in the NBA, he's just, he's been basically a center and that's about it. Right. Like he hasn't really improved 
much else. Um, like the, the scouting report that I'm reading from before the draft says he has an excellent shooting stroke and perimeter ball skills. Like, where has that been? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah, he's, he just hasn't been the same guy. And, and again, he, he did miss time um, with a, a pretty serious hip injury before the draft. So I, I think maybe that had something to do with it. But I, I think he was viewed as a lot more mobile than, than he's been in the NBA. Are, are there any names for you that, that stood out in the second round? A few. Olivier Hanlon from Boston College, just because his name is Olivier, never even <laughs> ended up playing in the NBA. He went 42nd. I, sorry, I missed J.P. Tokato. Oh, yeah, I was saving him. We we're going to get to yeah, J.P. Okay. Tokato. Yeah, okay. uh, Wisconsin Nate. I mean, he's one of those guys growing up in Wisconsin. Like, I remember hearing about him as like an eighth grader. I mean, he was yeah, right. Like, he, was, he was just such an anti-Wisconsin prospect, like this ultra super smooth, super athletic shooting guard. Uh, believe it or not, uh, ultimately didn't really give all that much consideration to going to Wisconsin. I have and, a hero vibe. Yeah, big time. I mean, kind of uh, Jalen Johnson from this year's class, too, who's going to Duke. Actually, pretty similar players. And Tokato had had you know had some nice plays at North Carolina, but was another guy who ended up on a pretty loaded roster and was never really able to be in a starring role on that team. And I, I remember watching him in summer league. He he also never played in a regular season NBA game. Spent some time in the G League. Sir Dominic Pointer is another one. Another guy based solely on the name. I was all in yeah. on. I mean, if your name is Sir apostrophe Dominic, you're obviously going to get some some looks from me. Uh, who else? There, there were some bizarre names that I don't remember at all. Like Donnie Diaz de la Fava went went to the I, Jazz. The Jazz took two players in the second round who never played in the NBA. Satnam Singh, you remember him? Went to Dallas. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Um, uh, I believe. Oh, he was traded on. He was traded shortly after draft night to Memphis. Marcus Thornton, name I definitely remember. Although, yeah. is that a different Marcus Thornton? Yeah, that's not the Marcus Thornton. Yeah, I was going to say. Not, not veteran shooting guard Marcus Thornton. Yeah, I was I was wondering why you didn't have any NBA games next to yeah, his yeah, name. Yeah. Uh, I remember some Joe Young minutes. Um, I, I don't even... Juan Pablo Valet. No recognition. I have no idea even who that is. He went 39th. Um, sounds like um, a IndyCar driver. It, it, it does. Uh yeah. Trying to find a list now of undrafted players. Also, who would have thought? Who would have thought thirty-first overall pick, uh, Chaggy Osmond, would have a better career than Mario Hazonia? Uh, uh, I, I mentioned Mario Hazonia, by the way. I just I wanted to bring up because he was seen as I think this was according this was according to Mannix. Um, uh, Hazonia uh, has star power and he's the total package. Uh, and then two Agreed. sentences later, two sentences later, he said he needs to work on his ball handling and defense. So I'm not really sure like how those things mesh, but also at the time, yeah, seemed like a guy who was like not going to miss despite coming off the bench for Barcelona. And I think maybe, you know, maybe the Hazonia thing really like, you know, uh, got GMs off the idea of like taking EuroLeague players who were like coming off the bench and stuff. Um, cause even, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if Ed, that was part of it. You know, everyone getting burned so bad on Hazonia. That was part of the reason that like Luka Doncic didn't, you know, go as high as he should have. But I, sure, I, I think that's maybe fair. I, I think there was, I mean, it's, it's ebbed and flowed right through basically since the late nineties where I think Dirk being so good 
caused a lot of teams to start reaching for for foreign players around the turn of the century. You know, there's a lot of swings and misses on European guys around that time. And for a while, it was kind of Dirk as like the only guy who was succeeding. And then you had Pau Gasol. So, it, you know, it just goes up, up and down. And when you have in consecutive drafts, Hazonia be a complete bust at five, Dragon Bender be a complete bust at four the following year, you know, I, I think it becomes a little bit harder for for teams to to kind of take that leap. I mean, if you look at the the draft after that, 2017, you had Neil Akina go eight to to the Knicks, but there was only two international players selected in the first round that year. The the other guy was Anzej Pesaniks, who I think is currently with Washington, if, if we're not counting Terrence Ferguson, who who you know skipped college and played overseas. You know, I, I think I think it all it maybe takes is one guy like Doncic to turn it back the other way. You know, so I mean, you look at this draft coming up and it's a pretty unique class in terms of there just not being these like domestic one and done talents that we're used to. Yeah. Once, once the lottery happens, I I think there's going to be a lot of those guys that end up going, but they're not, they're not like sure things like they have been, or at least have considered to be in recent years, we're going to see a ton of international players in the top 10 in this year's coming draft. And and part of it is just a weak American class, but I think part of it too is teams are going to now start trying to find the next Luka Doncic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that'll be the case. So the primary undrafted player from this class, I cannot believe he was undrafted this long ago, but it's Christian Wood. Wow. It's 24. I, do you know what happened there? Like, was he like, I mean, I remember him being a guy, he went to UNLV for a year, played, played with Rashad Vaughn, went to UNLV and, uh, well actually went to, went, played two years at UNLV. So he came out after his sophomore year, played well, averaged 16 and 10, uh, almost three blocks a game. You know, he was the same player back then as he is now, but he was just really, really raw. And I remember people saying like, this guy should not come out. He should not come out. And he hired an agent and people were like, all right, well, he's going to do this. And he ultimately went undrafted, ends up landing in Philadelphia that year, played, played 17 games for the Sixers, which you think, you know, if, if any team at that point, you know, had the minutes to try out a guy like that, it was the Sixers. Apparently they weren't impressed. He, he shows up in Charlotte the next year, doesn't play in the NBA at all the following year. And then, of course, last year resurfaces with with Milwaukee, the Pelicans, and now he's on to Detroit. Yeah, a guy who I he might have been the G League MVP. Um, he was putting up some insane numbers in the G League kind of around when the, I think the Bucks got him. I remember a couple of my friends being like really hyped about getting Christian Wood. Um, but just another guy. I just want to see. If there's one thing I just want to know. It's like, how many games will a you know Rashawn Holmes, Christian Wood front court win with like replacement level or not replacement level, but like an average team around them? Um, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you could put together a pretty solid team of just second round picks, right? I mean, you could go. You, you might be bringing Christian Wood off the bench or bringing Rashawn Holmes off the bench if you're considering Montrez Harrell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could. I mean, you yeah, you just play Christian Wood as that uh, like 28 minutes a game, six man power forward and center. Start yeah. Josh Richardson, uh, start Norman Powell. I think you'd have to go Richardson Conaton. at point. Yeah, go Richardson, Powell, Connaughton, Harrell, and Holmes. And then you're bringing Christian Wood and Jetty Osmond off the bench. I think you have to start Harold. Uh, you have to start Wood for floor spacing because Holmes doesn't shoot threes anymore. Holmes, another guy who I think played for Philly, right, and was shooting threes for them. He definitely played for Philly. He played three full years with the 76ers, and yeah, he shot some threes. The second year, especially, he took 77 threes and hit 35. percent I always thought it was weird that like 
Phoenix had him stop stop shooting threes, but I think I think he just needs to be around the basket on offense yeah. because of his offensive rebounding. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of these guys who've just ended up in bad situations. Is there anyone who's been in a worse situation to start their career than Holmes? Like, he's a part of the tail end of the process. He is a part of like one of the worst Suns teams ever, and you know, <laughs> kind of right in the middle of their run of just being awful, and then goes to Sacramento the year after they're actually good. Yeah, I mean, he he's under contract next year for five million, and I think that will actually be big because if he can, if he actually is their starting center, if they do like Bagley at power forward. Holmes at center and Holmes still gets 30 minutes a game and they like play well. I feel like someone might, someone might pay him. Yeah. I think he's he's out here averaging, you know, 16 and 10 with a combined three steals and blocks per 36, Uh, like four offensive rebounds, 65% from the field. Like he shoots 80% from the free throw line. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm high on both like Holmes and, and Christian Wood as players. For Holmes, it's kind of a shame that he's not a free agent this year, just right. because the class is so weak. You know, like if would you rather pay him or like I'm looking at the list of available guys right now, and you know it doesn't match up position for position, but like would you rather throw four four years at him or like Gordon Hayward? You know, the other guys on that list are like Andre Drummond if he doesn't pick up his option, Eric Gordon, Demar Derozan. Like it, it gets everybody on the list has like some major flaw. So, you know, some of it is just like degradation or age, but this is not a great free agency class whatsoever. And I, I think he would be one of those guys who you look at a lot of the teams that have money, you know, Charlotte, Atlanta, teams like that. It, it's mostly bad teams. And those are the type of teams that tend to kind of take these leaps with, with maybe overpays on a guy like Holmes. And I tend to think it would work out, but I, the market could look very different for him next year. Yeah. I mean, if you're Charlotte and you had the money for him, like that's your starting center. Yeah, <laughs> you do. I don't think, think twice about it. For sure, for sure, and we'll we'll see how they handle that this summer because, I mean, they they were one of the teams that was always mentioned for Andre Drummond, and you know now it doesn't look like that's really going to happen anytime soon, and I don't think they have the center of the future on their roster right now, and maybe maybe they're going to draft him whenever the draft ends up taking place, but if they don't do that, I, I think yeah, that would that would actually be a really really interesting fit. Yeah, I don't know if Sacramento could like trade him. I like I I mean his contract is like super tradable. You know what I mean? Like he's he's being yeah, paid yeah. five million dollars next year. If you feel like you're not gonna re-sign him, you could probably get a decent amount of, amount of value for him. For sure. And I, I think it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with this year's transaction periods in general. You know, are we when is the draft even going to take place? When is free agency going to take place? Are they is there a chance that free agency this year, based on how everything works, ends up happening before the draft? Like, you know, some teams have wanted. I That's so far down the road at this point that I, I haven't really even considered that. <laughs> no, neither have I. Okay, we'll wrap this thing up. Um, really great to dive into this draft. I, I do not talk nearly enough about Rondé House Jefferson on a day-to-day <laughs> basis anymore, so I'm, I'm glad we were able to do that. Yeah, me too. All right, we'll be back on, well, I'll be back with James tomorrow. We're going to talk 2020 NBA draft. He, out of nowhere, just sent me his big board yesterday. Didn't even know <laughs> he was working on it. So he's he's ready. Like, it, it's a treat whenever James, like, hits me up saying we got to do a pod. So look for that tomorrow. I, uh, and then, or go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm, re- I'm going to listen to that, like, without a doubt. Because my, I get all of my college basketball knowledge from, like, you guys and other podcasts. And so I'm, I'm really excited to hear, like... <laughs> who is viable and like, you know, uh, what other 
I want to I, I want to hear like the uh, I want to hear James Skyrim report on the foreign guys and yours as well. I'm looking at his top ten right now, and it is laced with foreign guys. So I I mean I, nice. God God forbid I I release it That's on awesome. this podcast, but keep an eye out for that tomorrow. And the three of us will be back next week. Like I said at the top, we're gonna do Game Seven, 2004 Western Conference second round, Wolves Kings. So keep an eye out for that. Doing those has been really fun so far. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.